You may open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, and we want to look at the last two verses this morning. We have opened the Word of God, which is the words of God, given to us from heaven. In Jeremiah 36, Baruch was questioned, how did you get those words? Jeremiah pronounced them, and I wrote them down in the book. David said in Psalm 45, My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the thing which I have made concerning the king. His heart was dictating to him. In seminaries, they make fun of the dictation theory of Bible inspiration, but that's what we believe because that's what the Bible says. My heart is indicting a good matter, and I wrote it down. And Baruch answered, because he had no respect for those proud men that hated the Word of God, he said, he pronounced it, and I wrote it in a book. And that's what we have in the book of Hebrews, are the words of God given to us from the pen of the Apostle Paul. There is no doubt about it. Paul wrote the epistle to the Hebrews without a shadow of a doubt, with 100% certainty. Even though they can write volumes... Debating who wrote the book of Hebrews, we know that Paul wrote it from countless measures. I want to read to you the last two verses of this chapter. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. The emphasis in these two verses around the word once. Men are appointed once to die, and Jesus Christ died once in their place, because by His one sacrifice He put away sins forever. But then there's a little play on that word once, by saying that He's going to appear the second time. He died once, but He came, or is coming, twice. He came once 2,000 years ago, and He's about to come any day soon for us. We want to look at these two verses. But when we look at these two verses, we notice that they begin with that conjunction and, and so we want to make a brief survey of the rest of Hebrews chapter 9 to see what the context is. The lesson of Hebrews chapter 9 is one simple lesson. The new covenant or the new testament of the Lord Jesus Christ is far superior to the old covenant or old testament that was under Moses. That's mainly the lesson of the book of Hebrews. That's why it was written to Hebrews. It was written to Jewish believers so that Paul could convince them of the superiority of the Christ that they had believed on and had been baptized unto. There was a great temptation for these Jewish believers to go back under Moses because they knew that the system of Moses was God's religion as well. But the superiority of Jesus Christ to it is taught us in this book over and over, and it is here in Hebrews 9. Go back to the first verse. Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Paul wants to remind these Jews that he as a Jew... And they, as Jews, had a sanctuary. It was the tabernacle under Moses, 
or the temple from Solomon and after. And they had divine ordinances of service. They had specific things that they were supposed to do to worship God. They had specific furniture in this tabernacle. And it's listed for us in verses 1 through 5. There isn't a concise statement like this given in the whole Old Testament. Paul just in five verses lists for us the furniture that was in both of the compartments of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent, and it had two sections. In the first section, where the priests went every day in the service of God, they were there to light the candles so that there was always light in the house of God at night. They went in there with incense every day. They offered sacrifices every day. But there was also another compartment called the holiest of all, in which a priest could enter, the high priest, only once a year, and only with blood, because that was the day of atonement to make atonement for the sins of the people. When we come down to verses 6 through 10, we have that form of worship described to us. In verse 6, the apostle tells us that the first compartment, the priest went into it all the time. They went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. The seventh verse tells us that the high priest alone, no one ever went with him, went into that sacred compartment once a year with blood. Verse 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit was signifying by the fact that the Holy Spirit, that the high priest could only go in there once a year, could only go in there alone, could only go in there with blood, show that the way to God was not yet open while that first covenant was still standing. The way to God was not yet open. They went, they timidly went once a year with blood while the whole congregation watched that high priest disappeared into that holiest of all to make atonement for the sins of the people. Verse 9 tells us that all those ordinances of the old covenant were just a picture. And they couldn't make the doer of the worship, perfect as pertaining to his conscience. His conscience was still bothered by sins when he went home from those church services. Because when he went home from those church services, he realized the blood of animals and the blood of bulls and goats and these carnal forms of worship had not put away his sins. A remembrance was made of his sins, but there was no putting away of them. He knew he was still condemned before God. And verse 10 goes to, to tell us, that that whole Old Testament, and this is what a verse you ought to remember, when anyone tries to go back to the Old Testament to add a New Testament worship, when they try to worship on Saturday or the seventh day, or when they try to follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament, you've got a verse for them. Which stood only in meats and drinks and divers' washings and carnal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of Reformation. They were carnal ordinances. They were forced to do them because who would have chosen to keep the book of Leviticus by choice? They were forced to do it, and they were only forced to do it until the time of Reformation when the form of religious worship would be reformed, would be reformed to the New Testament. Amen. When we would worship like we do right now in spirit and in truth. There's nothing carnal about this assembly. There's nothing that attracts our eyes. If you read about the description of the tabernacle, it was very beautiful to look upon. If you read about the garments that the priests wore and their mitres, very beautiful to look upon. The brazen altar and all the gold was beautiful to look at. 
So you had something for the eyes. You had something for the ears as sacrifices and holy days were announced by trumpets. You had something for the nose with the incense. You had something to touch, taste, and take home because you had your sacrifices that you ate. It was a very carnal religion. Look at ours. There's nothing here for you to see. Nothing much for you to hear in the way of instrumental music. Nothing to smell except your neighbor's perfume. Nothing to touch, taste, or take home in the way of the Old Testament. That's why it's called carnal ordinances. It was a very sensual religion. It had to do with your senses. Your five senses were all involved in the Old Testament. None of them are involved in the New Testament. The time of Reformation, this is the Reformation we believe in. A Reformation founded and completed by the Lord Jesus Christ and His Apostles. Now beginning at verse 11. But Christ, so superior to that old form of worship described in the first ten verses, which was only a picture of what happens in heaven. Only a picture. of what, And a pitiful picture at that. It's called the beggarly elements of the Old Testament in the Bible. A beggarly picture of what happened in heaven. Now we have Jesus Christ coming, which was 2,000 years ago. And here's what we can read about His coming. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Let me quickly run through these verses. It's a wonderful chapter in your Bibles. The tabernacle, Jesus Christ didn't deal with a tent. Moses dealt with a tent. A tent is a... How many of you slept last night in a tent? You all think that living in a tent would be despicable. Well, it was despicable. And God was worshipped in a tent, but the Lord Jesus Christ had a better tabernacle, and that's heaven itself. Heaven. The presence of God. Now, how many of you spent last night in heaven, and how many of you wish you had? We should all wish we had, because it's a far superior tabernacle. That is to say, it wasn't made with hands, and it's not of this building. It's nothing like you've ever seen on earth. It's not in any builder's magazines. Verse 12, He didn't take the blood of goats and calves when He entered into the holy place. And Jesus Christ did enter into the holy place. He entered into the place where God dwelt. The high priest went into a place where it was figured that God dwelt. But Jesus went into the presence of God and He took His own blood, as it tells us in that verse. And while the high priest couldn't accomplish salvation... When Jesus Christ took His own blood into the holy place, He obtained eternal redemption for us. He didn't offer us eternal redemption. He obtained it, as that 12th verse tells us. Verse 13 tells us that the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer could sanctify you legally under that testament. You could continue in your activities if you sprinkled yourself with some ashes and follow the Levitical order of purifying yourself. But it still didn't help your conscience. So he goes on immediately into verse 14. How much more, how much more shall the blood of Christ motivate you to want to serve God under the New Testament than all those rituals under the Old Testament that could never put away your sin because the blood of Jesus Christ, who offered Himself without spot to God, paid for all your sins, And therefore, we have a good conscience. 
And so what does verse 14 lead us to do? If we're thinking biblically, what activity do we engage in one time because of verse 14 with our good consciences? Baptism. We give God the answer of a good conscience because our conscience has been made good by the perfect blood of Christ that was shed for us. They could never do that in the Old Testament because their consciences were never purged. They still had the remembrance of sin. But because this is where we get the good conscience that enters into the water of baptism because we hear the gospel and it tells us our sins have been purged. Verse 15, and for this cause. Before I leave verse 14, let me jump back up there for just a second. I mentioned this last Lord's Day, but I don't want you to forget it. It says that the Lord Jesus Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without spot to God. Jesus Christ did not offer Himself to sinners. He offered Himself without spot to God, and God accepted it. And it was God's acceptance of Christ's perfect offering that purges our consciences and gives us a good one that we want to answer God for what He's done for us. The new versions say in 1 Peter 3.21 that we don't answer God for a good conscience. We request a good conscience in the waters of baptism. And that's heresy. It's called believer's baptism by Baptists because we believe first and then we're baptized. We already have a good conscience because we're already saved and we already know that we're saved because Jesus entered into the presence of God and obtained eternal redemption for us and we get baptized as a result of that. Showing it in a visual picture and a figure of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord that secured our salvation. We don't go into the waters of baptism to be saved. Remember, two billion people on earth call themselves Christian out of six billion. One billion of those are Roman Catholics. Do they go to the water to get saved? Yes. They pour water on the foreheads of their little babies and jam some salt in the little baby's mouth and think that that saves it. And so do the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians and the Lutherans and the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox. And so out of two billion, one billion, nine hundred and fifty million believe that you get saved by baptismal waters. We are saved by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and it's because of that salvation we go into the baptism the waters of baptism to show a picture of how God already saved us. It's the answer of a good conscience, not the means to get one. Lord, have mercy upon us and keep us holding fast to Your Word. I've taught you that before from 1 Peter 3.21. That's the greatest verse in the Bible about baptism, and it is corrupted in three different ways in the modern versions. Maybe we can get to that before we finish our Bible study series. Now let's go to verse 15. And for this cause, He is the mediator of the New Testament. That by means of death. Now brethren, let me chase a little rabbit here. In times past, we have been called anti-means Baptists. Anti-means Baptists. Meaning that we are Baptists that believe that men are born again and regenerated without the use of human means or instrumentality. That men are justified by the blood of Jesus Christ without human means. We don't believe that faith or baptism are the means to get justified or to be born again. 
So our ancestors have been called anti-means Baptists. However, we do believe in means. Because this verse forces us to believe in means. This 15th verse said, And for this cause He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, that's how we believe we were saved. The means in our salvation is not some missionary working to get me to make some acceptance statement about Jesus Christ. The means of my salvation is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. When He said it is finished, what was finished? The means of our salvation. When we hear the Gospel and we believe it, that's a different salvation. That is coming to a knowledge of the truth. That's life and immortality being brought to light. Not immortality and life being given to us. Brethren, we are in a small minority, but we're going to stay there. We do believe in means, but it's the means of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so He is the one that put away all the sins that were under the First Testament. In verse 15, do you know what Paul tells us we got the law for? Why there was a law? That sin might abound. Well now, if, if that whole religious system that lasted for 1,500 years, all it did was to make us see that we were exceedingly sinful and had a whole lot of sins, then who's going to put away all those sins? It seems like it would be a great quantity that needs to be put away. And so we have this 15th verse that says the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament were put away by the Lord Jesus Christ. That they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Jesus Christ died in order to guarantee the eternal inheritance of those who are appointed, ordained, predestinated, and called to eternal life. That's what the 15th verse is teaching us. Now, 16 and 17 are simple. If a man writes a will, the will doesn't do anyone any good until the man who wrote the will dies. While the man's alive, his will might sure be nice reading, but it has no power or force because all the things that are listed in the will are still the man's who wrote the will. No ownership is transferred. And so God wrote a will, and the will is... You have rebelled and sinned against me, but I am going to save you by the blood of my only begotten Son, and I am going to adopt you as my children, and I will give you heaven forever, and I will raise your bodies from the dead, unite them to your souls and spirit, and you will spend eternity with me. That's the will. And it includes all other spiritual blessings that I failed to list in my primitive and simple enumeration. But how do we get that will into force? The Lord Jesus Christ died. He was the testator of the will. God appointed Him as the testator. The will was written. It's called the everlasting covenant. And the Lord Jesus Christ died, and the everlasting covenant went into force. That's why when the Lord Jesus Christ went into the holy place, into the presence of God for us, was He able to walk up to Him that sat on the throne and take the book out of His hand? Was He able to do that? Indeed He was. And all the blessings that we'll ever enjoy and all the judgments upon the wicked were contained in that book. Because as He began loosing the seals from that book, the judgments fell upon the wicked. And when He opens that book, it's going to have our names in it. Because when He took that book, the redeemed in heaven began singing about their salvation. Their salvation was tied up in that book that we read about in Revelation chapter 5. The Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago levitated out of the presence of the disciples. They saw Him disappear into the clouds. 
And then in a blinding flash of light, he was in heaven to appear in the presence of God for us. And he's been there ever since, and he is there right now making intercession for us at the right hand of God. Glorious salvation. This is the true gospel. This is true history. All other history is worthless tripe. Who cares about World War I or World War II in comparison to this transaction? This transaction had players in it that didn't mess around with little tiny pop guns called M1 Garands or any other weapons. This was the spiritual world of the devil and his angels and the spiritual world of the Lord Jesus Christ and his angels. And there was a war in heaven and the devil was cast out of heaven because there is nothing left to accuse the elect of anymore. Because Jesus Christ had put it all away. That's the great news of Revelation chapter 12. So verses 16 and 17 told us that to get a will into force, the man who writes the will has to die. So the Lord Jesus Christ died to put the will into force. And the will is, I give unto you eternal life. You say, how do I know that I'm in that will? I want to know that I'm in that will. That will sounds great, but it's only great if I'm in it. That's okay to be selfish like that. Everyone wants to be in that will. The Apostle Paul said that he was willing to give up everything and lose everything that he might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. In Philippians 3, 8 through 11. And we'll answer that before I finish this morning. Can you just hold on? Let's keep reading about the will. Verses 18 through 23, I'm going to skip them except to say this. It requires blood to put either covenant into force. Verses 18 through 23 expressed to us that in the picture that God gave us for 1,500 years under Moses, everything he did was blood. Do you know how ugly and messy and dirty that religion would have been? He would dip his little hyssop branch into blood and sprinkle it on the book. Do you know what the book of the law of God looked like? It was bloody. Do you know what the altar looked like? He would put blood on the ears of the priests. He would sprinkle blood on every vessel that they used. If you brought something beautiful for them to use in the tabernacle, they put blood on it. Blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And when blood leaves the body, the body is dead. And so from the very beginning, God wanted to emphasize the bloody religion that is necessary to pay for sinners. Because life life has to be taken in order for sins to be paid for. Because the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And so there was blood everywhere. And if you read verses 18 through 23, it will tell you that both Testaments used blood. But the first one was the blood of animals, and the second one was the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which cup we take up once a month and say, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. We come to verse 24. and And we move on here. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. He's jumping back to talk about the sanctuary. Jesus did not die and then go into a tabernacle, nor did he go into the temple. Here's where he went. Into heaven itself. Isn't that what it says? Into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. That high priest went in once a year for a few minutes, sprinkled some blood in the mercy seat that was over the Ark of the Covenant, underneath the cherubim that had their wings outspread over that Ark of the Covenant, and then he'd come back out. And that was supposed to put away their sins for a year. But Jesus Christ has gone into the very presence of God in heaven for us, and He's there right now. I am an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I am telling you something this morning that you don't know about except by faith and by listening to God's Word. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, after giving His life up on the cross and being buried, rose from the dead and took His blood and the consequences of losing it into heaven itself to appear in God's presence for us as our great high priest. And He is a marvelous great high priest. He did not take the blood of animals. He took His own blood. He didn't go into some earthly temple. He went into heaven itself. He didn't go to a place that just pictured the presence of God. He went into the presence of God. And so we have verse 24. Verse 25. Nor yet. Here's another difference with Moses. He doesn't have to offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year. Well, now how can you have a day of atonement and then another day of atonement? And then another day of atonement. Because the atonement wasn't really getting the job done. It wasn't really making God and sinners at one, was it? Atonement means to make at one. Think about how the word word is spelled. Can you spell the word atonement? Can you guess at the first five letters? A-T-O-N-E-ment. Atonement. They They knew that they weren't made at one with God or you wouldn't have to be offering the sacrifice again. So verse 25 tells us Jesus didn't do it like that. They had to go in every year. Verse 26 says, If that was true, then He would have suffered since the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ would have been been put to death over and over and over from the foundation of the world. But now once, in the end of the world, meaning 2,000 years ago, because that is the end of the world compared to the beginning of the world, He appeared once To put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Once. So as we come through chapter 9, and you just got a review of why the religion of Jesus Christ is so much better than the religion of Moses. What's what's the title at the top of this book? What's the name of this book? Hebrews. Hebrews. He's writing to Jewish believers, Paul is. And he's wanting to encourage them, you've made the right decision, leaving the religion of Moses to join Jesus Christ and to be baptized in His name. And he's explained that there's been one sacrifice that's been offered once and put away our sins. And so we come to verse 27. And that's what the word and means. There's a connection here with what's gone before and especially an emphasis on the word once. Because we have the word once in verse 26. We have the word once in verse 27. And we have it in verse 28. Because the lesson that Paul has given is Jesus Christ died once and put away our sins. And you know when it occurred. 2,000 years ago. And since that time, He's been in the presence of God with His own blood for us. The second word we have is as. It's a little adverb. And it means in the way specified. When you have an as in the Bible like this, you want to look for the so that connects to it. And the so is down in verse 28. It's the first word of verse 28. If you mark in your Bibles, you can circle as, circle so, and draw a line between them. The as-so construction in English is very powerful. It's a comparison, meaning in this very same way, as I have just described. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, so Christ once offered Himself. There's a comparison being on the once. We have all been appointed to a death, one death. We shall all die. But Jesus Christ died that one time for us. 
He didn't have to die multiple times because His one death, once for all, was sufficient for all of us. And as it is appointed, an appointment's been made for you. The world put, says it this way. See, they know this appointment. They just like to make fun of it. The world talks about this appointment by saying, there are two things certain in life, death and taxes. They know that taxes has been appointed for them because governments like to spend money. They know that death has been appointed for them because they see everyone die. You have an appointment that's been made for you, and God didn't ask whether you wanted it or not. Does that offend you? God didn't ask you if you wanted to die. He just made the appointment for you anyway. He made the appointment for you because our father Adam chose it for us. He warned Adam, and Adam chose it, and you know the story well. I don't need to repeat it. It is appointed unto men once to die. You have an appointment, and you will keep it. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Death is going to take each one of us. We have an appointment to it. God already sees the hospital bed. God already sees the casket. God already sees the grave because He's made an appointment and you're going to be in those things. Because we deserve it. We have sinned against the Most High God. He made an appointment for us and you will keep it and you can't avoid it. I love a verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 8 that says this. In this war, that is the war with death, and all of you seem to be fighting it. Man, I hear about alternative medicine. I hear about vitamins. I hear about minerals. I hear, hear about exercise. I hear about all this stuff, and I participate in some of it right along with you. Because we're in a war to try to stave off death. But do you know what the Bible says? There is no discharge in this war. Amen. You don't get to go home and go on vacation or furlough. There is no discharge from this war. The war with death is going to take you down. And it doesn't matter if you take vitamins or not. You're not even going to extend your life. You're going down. Listen, David never took a vitamin in his whole life. And he lived to be 75 years old or 70 years old. And he says in, in Psalm chapter 90 that that's all the longer anyone is going to live. 70, maybe 80 years, maybe freak exceptions longer than that. But you look at the average life expectancy of a male today in the United States, and it is 74 years of age. Now, isn't that amazing? I love a Bible that was written in 1000 B.C. that says that the lifespan of man is 70, and if they're strong, maybe 80. Do you know what that average is out to be? You got it, 74. Isn't that wonderful? It doesn't matter about vitamins, nutrition, or anything else. You're not going to change that. You're not going to alter it. Because you have an appointment made. And it tells us that right here in verse 27. And as it is appointed, you can't stop that appointment. There is no discharge in that war. And notice that it says, not and as it was appointed, and as it is appointed, because the rule still claims every one of us. In the present tense. It is appointed unto men. This reference includes you. Are you part of the human race? This is a general expression describing all humanity unto men. It is appointed unto men. You are included in this number because you have sinned and your wages incurred death by God's appointment. When the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men, what did He find? 
He looked to see if there were any that did understand. He looked to see if there were any that didn't like that appointment with death, and so they were living righteous and holy lives. Did he find any? He didn't find any. He found them all out of the way at GNC, trying to get vitamins and minerals in order to live longer, but he didn't find any living holy and righteous lives to live longer. And so we're all going down with this appointment because we are in the category of those people called men. But I'm thankful the Lord Jesus Christ did not take on Himself the nature of angels, but He took on Himself the nature of the seed of Abraham because He's going to deliver us from this appointment. And as it is appointed unto men once to die... When you see this once, you want to remember why we have once popping up here. Is there any doubt that men die two, three, ten, or twenty times? No. It's because he has once in verse 26, and he has once in verse 28, and he's trying a little comparison, and if you will, some reverent and holy play on words by the Holy Spirit. And as is appointed a man once to die, just like Jesus Christ died once, Jesus Christ did offer himself once, to pay for that one death that all men have appointed for them. You know, the Lord Jesus didn't need to die twice. When He said it is finished, and the Father accepted that one death, that was enough. Today is a day when the most masses are being said. There were a bunch said yesterday, and there will be some said tomorrow. The Mass in a Catholic church, they offer that sacrifice every time they get together. They call it an unbloody sacrifice even though they say what's in the cup is blood. I haven't figured that one out yet, and I don't think they have either. They swear that once they say the hocus-pocus words over their cup and over their cracker, it has turned into the literal blood of Jesus Christ. And yet they call it an unbloody sacrifice because they do have a tiny little bit of screaming conscience that says Hebrews tells us there is no more blood to be offered. So they're in trouble with the Word of God, and we never want to be in trouble with the Word of God. When it says that He was offered once, we believe that He was offered once, and I'm thankful that the Savior we worship said, It is finished. And it was finished. He had obtained eternal redemption for us. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, the Lord told us, Eat of the fruit, thou shalt surely die. We ate. And we shall surely die. And don't forget, 70 is all you can expect. And if you're a little stronger than the average, then you might reach 80 or so. Even those of you that are going to school know that anything beyond 80 is not worth talking about because it is statistically insignificant. And basically you can ignore it. The standard deviations away from 70 and 80 are so tight that there is nothing to talk about the people that live to 90. If you ever read about somebody that lives to 90, it sticks in your mind because it is such an exception. The rule is still what Moses wrote in Psalm 90. That makes it even better than David because it was written in 1500 B.C., but I'll leave that to your thoughts later. And as it is appointed to men once to die, if there is one subject that we should want to get together about and figure out, it's how can we avoid death? How can we beat death? Is there any better subject than that to get together? How can we beat death? I have the answer. 
It's called the good news of the gospel. And I don't have it within myself. I have it on these pages. Here's an appointment that's been made for you. You're going to die. But the Lord Jesus Christ has delivered us from death. He has delivered you so thoroughly from death, He says, Are you willing to go to sleep for me? Are you willing to go to sleep for me? I'm going to put you in your bed. You can rest. You'll be free from all your labors. You'll be free from all your trials and your sorrows. I'm just going to let you sleep. When the Lord refers to death, He says, He sleepeth. They laughed Him to scorn, but we ought to rejoice with praise. Do you hear me? If there's one subject that we should want to learn about, it's defeating death. And the Lord Jesus Christ has defeated it. It is appointed unto men once to die, but Jesus Christ has once died for us already. And it is appointed unto men once to die, but... Ooh, I thought that was about as bad as it could get. I had to die. But... But... It doesn't say and. It says but. You mean there's something worse than death? There's something worse than death. But after this, the judgment. But is set there as an adversative, stating that the judgment that's coming is worse than the death. And I tried to teach that to you last Sunday. Oh, it's one thing to die. You just go out of conscious existence in this world and you enter into another. But after that moment when you leave this world, is a judgment. You will find out immediately your eternal destiny. It will be formally declared to the universe at the day of the last judgment, but you will immediately lift up your eyes in hell if you're not one of God's elect, just like the rich man did. And if you're a poor beggar that was having dogs lick his sores, but he was one of God's elect, he was in Abraham's bosom at the same time. The rich man went from his limo to hell. Lazarus went from dogs licking him to Abraham's bosom or heaven. But after this, the judgment. The but is there to tell you that there's something worse than death. And if you'll keep this in mind, verse 28 becomes all the more special because the two things that we're being told about in verse 27 are both dealt with in verse 28. We're told two things. It is appointed to men once to die... But after this, the judgment. There's two things there, death and judgment. And verse 28 is going to solve both of them. Judgment is worse than death. Just think about death. Let's put it in the best, let's put it in an average light. You've got cancer. You're in a bed, you're on oxygen. You may be on life support at the very end. And then all that pain ends. But in the next second, you meet God. And the judgment begins. And the judgment lasts forever. A few weeks, months, or days, or hours in bed with cancer is nothing compared to eternity under the judgment of God. But after this, the judgment. So I've got even better news for you. Not only do I have news for you that gets rid of death and its power over you, I have news that gets rid of the judgment that is coming for everyone after death. Praise the Lord for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why little bands of saints 
have gathered together under great persecution for 2,000 years, under great persecution and were most willing to lay down their lives to stake and be burned up in the flames of Roman persecution, whether it was pagan or papal, because they knew they had a better inheritance waiting for them. And they knew that to get a hold of that better inheritance, they had to pass through that curtain of death. And if their enemies wanted to help them to that end, they could die as martyrs of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they did so willingly. Amen. They were the greatest people that the world has ever seen. The Bible says about them, here's what God says, the world was not worthy to have them walk on this planet. God never says that about anyone laying down his life in the military. Everyone laying down their life for the cause of Jesus Christ without resistance, but for the hope and faith of a better inheritance, the world was not worthy of them. You can read that in the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 11. But after this, the judgment. Don't forget about the judgment, brethren. We have all learned a verse. Ecclesiastes 12.13 And I make this point often. Here's what Solomon said after reviewing all of the things that a man could do in the world to try to find fulfillment. Solomon tried everything you have fantasized about and will never be able to do ever in your life. And he did it a whole lot better than you can even fantasize about it. Because he had a mind that was 10,000 times your mind. And when he got to the conclusion of all of his experimentation, he said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. You know the verse. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That is the next to the last verse of Ecclesiastes. The final verse explains why that is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. That is a wonderful summary of a man's observations and experiments with life. The whole duty is to fear God and to keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man, and there's a reason for it. We will give an account after death for everything we have done, every secret thing that no one else knows about, every thought that no one else knows about, we will have exposed fully to the holy God before whom we'll stand. So Paul would say in Romans chapter 14, he would say this, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. As it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. That's Romans 14. In 2 Corinthians 5, he would say it this way, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And we could quote more. We could go to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11 through 15 and see the picture described for us in words of God sitting on His throne, the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on His throne in the heavens and the earth, fleeing away from before the eyes and face of Him that we will have to face. When it says, but after this the judgment, it is a terrible and a holy thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But this is verse 27. There's no good news in verse 27. Verse 27 is terrible news. The only reason we came together this morning is for verse 28. If I left you with verse 27, 
There's no good news there. There's no hope there. There's no glory there. It's punishment and judgment. And so we come to verse 28, and we have the word so, which connects us back to the as of verse 27. In just this way, Jesus Christ took care of all the problems of verse 27. It's appointed to men once to die and then the judgment. So Christ was once offered to put away both of those things. And now we want to see that. Christ. Now it just says Christ here. It doesn't say Jesus Christ. The word Christ in your Bible means the Messiah. When the Messiah is brought into the Greek language and then into the English language, it ends up being Christ. Jesus, the promised one of God, the anointed one of God, the Messiah of God, the promised seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, Shiloh, the son of the virgin, our deliverer, our savior, the prince of peace, the counselor. It's all wrapped up in the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth was his name. Although it wasn't pronounced anything like that by his mother. Jesus of Nazareth was his name. Christ was what he was. He was the Christ. And he is Lord as well. That's why Peter would say, God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is the promised Messiah even though you put him to death. He is the Lord though you think you had the power of him. He's got all the power over you. And so we read in verse 28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. It's, we have the past tense verb there, as opposed to the present tense verb appointment in verse 27, because He once offered Himself in the past tense 2,000 years ago on Calvary. I love the death of a substitute that is so powerful, not only does the death reach back for all the sins and transgressions under the first covenant, it reaches forward to all those that are still under the appointment of death. Jesus Christ has died and paid for all the sins past, present, and future of every one of His elect. There is no sin left. So Christ was once offered. Here's the once that is the emphasis of verses 26 27 and 28. Jesus didn't have to die multiple times. You know, when when you are depending upon a multiple offering of a sacrifice, you have got to fear that anything would interrupt that succession of multiple sacrifices. If your redemption depended on perpetual sacrifices, your fear would be, what if something comes along to interrupt these perpetual sacrifices? But Jesus Christ died once for all. And the once here is the emphasis of these last three verses of this chapter. Once. It is finished. Once for all. All sins by one death. One man by one death put away our sins. And so that's why the emphasis is on the word once. And the emphasis is because the word is repeated three times in these three verses and because of the as-so comparison. And as men die once, so Jesus Christ died once. In agreement with what we found in verse 26, that Jesus didn't have to suffer from the foundation of the world. He only had to suffer one time on the cross of Calvary. And so Jesus Christ was once offered 
And here we have that word offered again that we know about because verse 14 already explained it to us. Jesus Christ offered Himself without spot to God. All sacrifices are made to God. Sacrifices that are made to pay for sin are offered to God because God's the one offended. When you are going to give a gift or a sacrifice or give up something to someone to put them at peace with you, it's the one offended. And so the sacrifice was given to God because He was the one offended. And we were told about that in verse 14. So Christ was once offered, not offered to men, but offered to God to bear the sins of many. Because all of our sins were put upon Him. We read in Isaiah 53 that all our iniquities were laid on the Lord Jesus Christ. If our iniquities were laid on Him, then He bore them. And He bore them to Calvary's cross and suffered the bruising wrath of God in punishment for them. Think of any sin you wish, and you've got millions to think about. Any sin of your lips, any sin of your thoughts, all sins of your thoughts were laid in the Lord Jesus Christ. And He bore all of them. And so it says here, so Christ was once offered to bear. And He bore them all. He was loaded up with your sins and my sins. But He was a perfect sacrifice. He was the spotless Lamb of God. It was the precious blood of Christ. And it was enough to pay for all our sins. It says, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins. And thank God that He bore all your sins. He bore them all so that it can be said in the Bible, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is He that condemneth? This is the next verse. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. How can you dare lay charge to any of God's elect? God justifies, and Christ is there to make sure that it's seen through to eternity. Because He's risen from the dead. He won the victory over our sins. He bore our sins, paid the price, and delivered us from the death that we deserve. Delivered us from the appointment that was made for us So nothing can be laid to the charge of God's elect. And that's why the devil had no more purpose or use in heaven. Because what could he bring up about any of us to God? He could question Job's integrity on the other side of the cross. But he can't question your integrity on this side of the cross. Because Jesus Christ died for your lack of integrity. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And here we have a subtle but obvious. Subtle in that it's not expressed in but more than one word. But an obvious indication of the many that God gave to the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem them from their sins, but not to all men. Here's a a statement about particular redemption. In this church we believe in particular redemption. Jesus redeemed a particular group of people. We believe in a special death of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died specially for His elect. We believe in an effectual sacrifice. Because when Jesus laid down His life as a sacrifice, He actually saved men. He didn't offer salvation. He didn't make salvation possible. He obtained eternal redemption 2,000 years ago when He went into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And it tells us that right here. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And the many are the sheep of God. The many includes us if we fulfill what I'm about to explain to you. 
The Bible tells us that Jesus laid down His life for the sheep. Jesus divided all of humanity into sheep and goats. And He said, I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10.11 John 10.15 He said, I lay down my life for those that the Father gave me. John 10.28 and 29 He said, I'll not lose one of them that the Father gave me to redeem. Look at John 17. I haven't made you turn hardly at all this morning. I want you to see something that I mentioned last Lord's Day and I am mentioning again right now. And that's the multiple gifts that are involved in eternal life. And it's, there's not an offer in here. And I want you to see the multiple gifts that end up in our salvation. John 17. This verse is well known by most of you. But it never hurts to hear it and see it again. Because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Amen. John 17, verse 2. Jesus Christ is speaking to His Father in heaven. And He says in verse 1, Glorify Thy Son, that Thy Son also may glorify Thee, as Thou hast given Him power over all flesh. God the Father gave to the Lord Jesus Christ power and authority over all flesh. Jesus Christ could give eternal life, And He could withhold eternal life. He has the key of David. He opens and no man shuts. He shuts and no man opens. As thou hast given Him power over all flesh, and that all flesh is all mankind, Jesus Christ had authority and power given to Him by God over them all. And what was the purpose of this great authority He had? That He should give eternal life. This is great so far that He should give eternal life. God gave Him authority so that Jesus Christ could give eternal life. And here are the objects of that great gift. To as many as Thou hast given Him. God the Father gave to Jesus Christ those that Jesus Christ was to give eternal life to with the power that God had given to Jesus Christ to give eternal life. This is John 17.2. And it's just as valuable as John 3.16. And when understood together, they both are saying the very exact same thing, except in John 3.16, Jesus is giving a character trait of those that the Father gave Him. They believe. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. What was the purpose? To make sure that He gave eternal life to as many as believed on Him. Because the whole book of John is written to those that believe in order for them to have their eternal life confirmed and assured of. Do we know that? Well, John wrote these kind of words. These things have I written unto you that ye may know that ye have eternal life. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe in the name of the Son of God. The reason we get together, the reason we have Scripture, the reason we read Scripture, the reason we encourage each other in the Scripture is to increase our faith, build our hope, and fulfill our assurance that we have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 17, verse 2, has three givings, and they are a gift of power to Jesus Christ, the gift of eternal life from Jesus Christ to a certain number of people, and those people are identified as the ones that God had given to Him. This is the same group of people called the sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're the ones that are described in John chapter 6 as the ones that Jesus would not lose a single one of them. And so back to Hebrews 9.28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. 
Jesus Christ was offered by, through the eternal Spirit to God for the sins, all the sins, of the many of God's elect. God accepted that sacrifice. They were delivered from their appointment because it's, of, it's, it's the result and wages of sin that men are appointed to die. And it goes on. It says, and. So there's more. Just like it said, but after this, the judgment, there's more. And unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. When Jesus Christ comes the second time, He is not bringing any sins with Him. He is not going to hold anyone accountable legally for their sins because He is coming without sin unto salvation. And this salvation, it's the last word of Hebrews chapter 9, is our final salvation. It's one that is yet to come. It's one that comes in conjunction with His second coming. This is the final phase. This is glorification. This is the declaration to the universe that you're a son of God and your sins have been forgiven you. This is enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. This is well done, thou good and faithful servant. This is the salvation of the second coming. And it's without sin. So certain was Paul that there would be no sins brought up again against him in any legal way. He said, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I have committed my soul into safekeeping to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I know that he's able to keep it safe. Because he's going to come again without sin, because he's put away sin by the sacrifice of himself once for all. Jesus died once, but he's coming twice. And one of those comings has already occurred, and one is yet to come. Anyone who calls me a preterist doesn't know what a preterist is, and they don't know me. Because there's a salvation that is yet coming at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it is still future. And it's the deliverance of our bodies from the grave. And and He's coming without sin to receive us unto Himself. But notice what it says here. It says, And unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. When Jesus comes again, He's going to appear to some in a way that's going to cause them to admire Him. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 But He is going to appear frightfully terrifying to others because He will not come without sin for them, and He will not come with salvation for them. He's going to come with all their sins and eternal judgment for their sins. So what makes the difference? How can I know that the will of God, the last testament, the new testament, the everlasting covenant was written and I am a beneficiary and my name is written down in the book of life? How can I know that? And we should all want to ask that question. And anyone that doesn't want to ask that question will spend eternity in hell. But for a miracle of the grace of God, and that is an exception to His ordinary way of doing things. Because you are showing that you are a profane scorner in the same category as Cain and the other devil-possessed men that have walked this planet if you do not care about the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ and His second coming. It says, And unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Having put away their sins, having paid for their judgments so that they are at one with God, having fulfilled the atonement, Jesus Christ is going to come 
for those that look for His appearing. Now, here's the problem. This is the evidence of eternal life. Do you look for the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ? And unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time. I want to tell you something. There's not a word outside this building to remind us of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not a word. Not a picture, not a thought, not a reminder, not anything that Jesus Christ is coming. Why are there some people that live thinking, singing, and talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ all the time? Because Jesus Christ has saved them and given them a new heart. And they are totally transformed. So that they are thinking of spiritual things and they are thinking of heavenly things instead of thinking of the rot that's down here. Anything that you can see horizontal is rot. It is temporary and it's all going away and it's going to be burned up and consumed and devoured and melt under fervent heat. But when you lift your eyes heavenward and see what Jesus Christ is telling us is up there and that He's about to come and what it's going to be like when He comes, those things are eternal and they last forever. This is the mark of a child of God because only the children of God that have been transformed by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit care about His second coming. The rest of the world rushes on with their stupid degree programs, their stupid jobs, their stupid businesses, their stupid families, their stupid hobbies, their stupid pleasures, all of which is worthless tripe in comparison to the coming of Jesus Christ that will save them from not only death, but from judgment that comes after death. That is what we need to examine ourselves with this morning. Do I look for Him? Am I looking for Him? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul said, Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. How did Paul know that the Thessalonians were elect of God? I'm going to tell you how he knew. Because in that same chapter he said, The whole world knows that when the gospel came to you, you turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son, Jesus, from heaven. That's how Paul knew that the whole church was elect. You can know whether a person is elect or not. And yes, I say some pretty horrible things out of this pulpit, but I say them the same way Paul said them. You can know. What do people talk about? When you meet someone that talks about something on this plane, horizontal, education, politics, nation, health, medicine, drugs, doctors, job, business, money, investments, any of those things, you've met someone that's probably not born again. Because if they're born again, their life will be changed to where they want to talk about spiritual things and heavenly things. Paul said, I know the Thessalonians are born again. I know they're God's elect because everyone knows of their reputation. They have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. They had left the things of this world and were serving God and waiting for His Son Jesus from heaven. That is what was remarkable about the Thessalonians, and that testimony and reputation had spread throughout the whole world. Paul was so excited, he said, everywhere I go, I don't have to say a thing about you Thessalonians, because they all tell me what kind of people you are. You've turned from idols to serve the living God, and you're waiting for His Son from heaven. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul told Timothy these final words about his own death, and he comforted Timothy and us this way. 
I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. The Lord is righteous, and He's going to give me a crown of righteousness at that day. Now listen, brethren, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing. Do you love the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you excited about Him splitting this sky wide open and coming with flaming fire and His mighty angels to destroy this wicked world and to take His children home to glory? Do you think about it? Do you sing about it? Do you love the thought? Can you, are you looking forward to it with, ex, with excited anticipation? Amen. Do verses like this get your attention? That in His times, He shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ is coming. He's hiding Himself a little bit right now from the world. We know because we can read. They can't read and they don't care. But He's coming soon and He will show that He is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords of this universe. Do verses like that excite your soul? Do they change your life? Do you talk about those things with others? Are you like Psalm 40 said in the next to the last verse? It said, those of you that rejoice in these things, say continually, let the Lord be magnified. Let the Lord be magnified. Let the Lord be magnified. He has paid for our sins. He has covered us for the final judgment. He's coming again for us without sin unto salvation. Let the Lord be magnified. Let the Lord be magnified. Instead, jobs, businesses. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? What in the world would you waste the breath that God created to talk about that trash in comparison to this event. If you love the appearing of Jesus Christ, you show a transformed heart. Because there's nothing out there to remind you of it. There's nothing inside by nature to remind you of it. And the devil hates that day because it's not going to go very well for him. Are you with me? So that when someone loves the appearing of Jesus Christ and lives in light of it, they are showing that God has totally changed their heart. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. He won't be bringing any with Him. He'll only be bringing eternal life with Him. Oh, brethren, do you love His appearing? Do you want to know how that you can lay claim and lay hold of eternal life? You can lay hold of eternal life by humbling yourself before the God of heaven, confessing that these are the most glorious things you've ever heard in your life, and that you cannot wait to see His Son from heaven. No one has ever loved the Lord Jesus Christ and wanted to see Him that was cast out, ever. Whosoever believeth on Me shall never be confounded. Whosoever loves my appearing shall never be ashamed. You will be received by the Lord Jesus Christ if you have a changed life that loves His appearing. We are too carnally minded as a church. You and I are too carnally minded as individuals. The second coming of Jesus Christ should consume us 
We should be waiting every day. We should be praying every day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. May the Lord bless us to do so. Have mercy upon us, Lord, and we thank Thee for Your great salvation.